0: W Media.
1: Hey there and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash livingthroughit. That's patreon.com slash livingthroughit. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there. And also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey there, and welcome. This week, we welcome to Living Through It the activist and organizer and attorney known as Toby Gioluca. Toby is the voter protection lead for St. John's County in Florida and has been on the front lines of voter protection in Florida for almost 20 years. She's also part of the legal team that was on the ground in detention camps in Texas and along the border during the Trump administration's family separation policy. I'm so excited to welcome Toby to the podcast. She's one of my dearest friends. You'll find this episode to be a little bit looser and more conversational than what we do historically, but I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much. And welcome back. And I am so thrilled to welcome to the Living Through It podcast, my dear friend, Toby Gioluca, who is an on-the-ground organizer in Florida, has been doing voter protection work for quite some time. Um, And, you know, honestly has through her work as a lawyer, touched so many of the most pressing civil rights and issues related to our democracy in her on-the-ground work. And given that we're here talking about Can Florida Be Saved? That's our theme for the week. I should mention that she lives in St. Augustine, and she has been on the ground fighting against all of the policies and the re-election of Ron DeSantis for uh, quite some time now. So, Toby, welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, so we're recording this the morning after the Georgia runoff and you were in Georgia last night until 2 a.m. Um, first things first, I have to thank you for, you know, not just doing the work in Florida, but also doing the work in Georgia. And how was the experience of doing that work, doing the voter protection work around the runoff for you?
0: Um, I I really enjoyed it. I always really enjoy it. I'm sort of a nerd about that kind of a thing. I really like seeing the process of democracy happening. So anything related to voting really just gets me pretty excited. <laughs> um and it was a good vibe. I mean, I was in a I was in a great place and they have um solid election staff and it went really, really well. Everybody was, you know, behaving themselves and it was just a it was a pleasure. And it, it was actually a blue county, which I live in an extremely red county in Florida. So I don't usually get to see results that I love rolling in. It was a very special treat to be able to see that county elect senator Warnock. I enjoyed it immensely. It
1: and it's good, you know, we're we've got four more years till we've got a senatorial election now in Georgia, which I think has everybody really happy. Um, Ooh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So, you serve as the St. John's County Voter Protection Lead for the Democratic Party in Florida and um, I know that over the years, the the history of how Florida has gone like purple to red has had a lot to do with um, not just gerrymandering, but also voter suppression efforts. And um, you know, I'm I'm curious to hear what your experience has been like doing this work because you've been doing it for a long time now. I mean, you know, I think that the years and years that you have put in doing this work, you've probably got some big picture views of how Florida got to this place, right? Like we all remember Florida being the battleground state in Bush v. Gore when, you know, it was called for blue and then it went red. And, you know, it used to be a state that was kind of in play a lot. So tell us a little bit about how this
0: has all happened it it's been really interesting ride um so you're right yeah i mean actually when i was a kid florida was blue so we've gone from blue to you know pretty hardcore red with the phase of purple in between and i think that it it's just really been a perfect storm for democrats here um first off florida is you know as everyone knows been a destination for Republican-leaning retirees for decades, right? Um, That population just continues to grow. And coupled with a pretty massive influx of Republicans during COVID, um, we really just have seen a big shift in demographics. I mean, at this juncture, Republicans do in fact outnumber, registered Republicans do in fact outnumber registered Democrats in the state of Florida. by a, a substantial margin. So um, that's a that's a problem, right? That's a problem for the Democrats. But but registered voters don't necessarily translate to active voters. So it's not insurmountable to have a situation where you have more registered Republicans than you do Democrats. Because historically, like for instance, in the county that I live in, has been red for a very, very, very long time since I was a kid. However, those voters were disengaged. They did not actively vote. I think I, I, I know a substantial number of people who never voted until Trump. So there was this activation of sort of these sleeper Republicans that weren't involved. And um, since Trump has, you know, been holding court in the state of Florida, both during his presidency and post-presidency, um, as well as, you know, our current governor, who's very active in the MAGA movement. There's sort of this hive of Republican energy that did not exist before. And it is uh, really turned these disengaged voters into just, I mean, they're just rabid supporters of the GQP. I mean, they are all in for not just typical Republican, but I mean, there's a heavy QAnon following here, and that intersects with MAGA quite significantly. So that's sort of our first issue is that we just have this big demographic shift. Um, secondarily, the suppression tactics have been incredibly successful. They have um, via voter suppression laws, um, nefarious re-registration tactics, so switching people from democratic to Republican registrations without their knowledge, um, extreme gerrymandering, and the gerrymandering here is just absolutely out of control. In fact, um, the Republican-controlled Senate during recent redistricting was just apparently unable to come up with an offensive enough redistricting map. So they just gave it to Ron DeSantis, and, and he was you know happy to create one on his own, which they then adopted, and, and that's where we are. Um, so that's very, very difficult, uh, to, to get candidates to run in districts where they know they don't have a, a chance because of, of the demographics there. Um, and I think the final nail in purple Florida has just been that the Democratic Party has just simply walked away from the battlefield here. And that is not something that is new to this cycle. This has been going on for a very long time. and. Um, we've been screaming about this for years. Uh, president Obama's win quite honestly was a a fluke here. And I say that not because he didn't deserve to win or he didn't run a great campaign. He ran a fantastic campaign and that was the fluke. That is not the way democratic campaigns are normally run in this state. And I think that unfortunately it belied the true trajectory of the state of Florida. So people had an expectation that the state was more winnable, um, than it than it actually is. I mean, it's just going to take a lot more work. So those are, I believe, the the biggest issues that Florida faces in terms of its transition to a red state and trying to reclaim a purple or even better, a blue status.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating just to think about it in the context of um, the work of Inatch Asorio, Osorio, who we had on the podcast two weeks ago, because one up. of the things that she talks about, she's, she's amazing. One of the things that we she, she talks about kind of nonstop is the fact that it's the disaffected and disengaged voters that we need to be going after. And one of the things that's really clear from what you just said is that when we see them, When we aren't doing the work of of our talking points that are persuading them as to why the future that we can build as Democrats and progressives is better than what's on offer from the other side, they will be the subject of recruitment by the Uh, far right, right? And so it's kind of sad in that respect because, you know, what I think about, what I was thinking about while you were talking about all of this is just the opportunity that's lost there. And then once that move has been made, as we all know, because Q is a cult and much of the GOP in the context of Trumpism is very cult-like, it's incredibly hard to pull those people
0: back, right? Uh, It's heartbreaking. I don't know how to do it. I mean, I've lost so many people that I grew up with here who were, you know, totally normal people and they're not now. I mean, the things that they say are just Yeah. I mean, I just it, it the conspiracies just never end and and it's just it's just tragic. Yeah, it really is. It's uh it's really tough.
1: I am curious about your work on voter protection in Florida, in particular, in light of what we talked about with suppression tactics and the like, and how that's been going. Because you're, you know, one of the things that I think folks should kind of know about you is that you're on the ground for everything. (laughs) Um, Just like many grassroots organizers do this work without anybody paying attention, like Toby is in every election doing everything, local, state, you know, federal, federal, um, in every respect, she is one of the on the ground people who is there, keeping an eye out to make sure that elections are secure and safe. So, um, so how has it been in Florida in the last couple of years
0: doing that it's work? Been really interesting because I do have this historical perspective. I started doing this in twenty or two thousand and four, so I'm almost twenty years in. And uh, I mean, what started out is eight to ten local attorneys, you know, monitoring the polls for issues that seem Completely minor in the context of what it is we're dealing with today. To now, we've you know we've grown our just our countywide team to 150 volunteers um, statewide. I think we have one of the largest, if not the largest, depends on who you ask, voter protection teams in the entire country. Obviously, we really need it here because we have some really big issues. But it's it's been interesting to see the shift from monitoring for the things that we used to monitor for, which was, you know, check-in procedures and precincts and people getting to the right places. I mean, it was just all very innocuous at this point. But we, uh, we have expanded our duties so broadly now. So we are, at this point, the expansion of the duties, the critical aspect of our work, which is protecting voters from disenfranchisement by a Republican-controlled system, and their misinformed, angry, and occasionally violent constituency, right? So we're we're kind of playing bodyguard in a bunch of different ways, and we're, we're also playing offense in that, so we are, um, we're coping with the election deniers who are dead set on infiltrating the election's, um, the process, either covertly as poll workers and poll watchers, and trying to subvert from the inside, or directly via you know voter harassment um, and legislation that is allowing anybody can, in the state of Florida now, anyone can protest the eligibility of a voter. We also have now, thanks to DeSantis's legislation, the opportunity for people to protest vote by mail signatures. Not only are we recruiting and training and deploying and managing these large teams of of poll watchers to be our eyes and ears during the election, but we are also training and recruiting ballot cure people um, teams teams to literally go to people's houses and help them cure their ballots that have been rejected. We are defending their signatures at ballot review meetings and canvas board meetings. And we are reporting, compiling, escalating issues in real time to state and national legal teams for instant action or long-term suits, uh, depending on what's appropriate in the situation. So it's just just a much wider array of uh, things that we are managing at this point. I hate that it's necessary, but I have to tell you, I enjoy the work. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and you're you're lucky that that's the case because I I mean I just do want to point out to the audience that a lot of the people who have experienced the same kinds of expansions of duties and what you're describing are also people who have been like threatened, oh, yeah. right? They've some people have been doxxed. Mm. They're folks mm-hmm. who, you know, for the sake of doing voter protection work and protecting our democracy, have really in some instances, literally put their lives on the line so that all of our democracy can kind of stay stable. So-
0: Oh, absolutely. It's wild that, I mean, election workers, voter protection workers, I mean, everybody, it is distressing to me that when I am training people, I have to tell them (laughs) that the staff in the polling places have been trained by Homeland Security and by the local sheriffs for active shooter situations that I have to, I have to give specific instructions about what to, to just forego the clerk, forego the deputy, go straight to the police, go straight to me. I, I have to instruct them to get themselves to a safe place before they even report to me or call the police. I mean, it's just really, it's unbelievable that we've gotten to that point in the United States of America, that, that literally we have, we have people whose lives are being threatened simply for trying to carry out free and fair elections.
1: It's horrifying. And, and simultaneously, you know, I think about how the province of being a poll worker historically has been the work of like retirees and- Oh, it still is. And, right, and and you know, kind of like moms who care about democracy. Right, we're not talking about these elections being staffed by ex military trained officials. These are like average everyday citizens sitting in polling places, putting their lives on the line, potentially putting themselves at risk. Yes, just for the sake of making sure that our election procedures are are followed out.
0: Mm-hmm. and and when i say that there's a deputy on site it's not a law enforcement deputy it's generally a retiree who has been deputized by the supervisor of elections so it's not someone who's who's able to provide security in any way shape or form and in fact we aren't law enforcement is not allowed to be on site they're they are allowed to respond to calls which in the past several years we have had I I don't think we ever had to call the sheriff's department prior to 2016. And now I have locations where the sheriffs are there multiple times a day, multiple times a day. I mean, it's just, it's craziest stuff. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know how, and, and I've had, Deep conversations with our supervisor of elections about this because we have been we have had we have locations that are just dangerous, and and we've tried to figure out the best way to deal with them without violating um, the statute that says you cannot have law enforcement loitering because I mean that's that's an that's that is in itself voter suppression right if you have sheriffs lingering around a polling place that can deter people from voting yeah. It's, uh, and it's, it's
1: scary that we've even gotten to that point. Um, well, that brings me to another issue. You know, we have, Ron DeSantis, unfortunately reelected now as the governor of Florida. Um, he and Trump have kind of gone at it in the last few months, notwithstanding the fact that historically DeSantis was first elected on these incredibly pro-Trump campaign ads when he first ran for governor. And I know, um, you and I have talked about this kind of offline. We have th- the the likelihood of DeSantis running for president. I think this point is sort of a foregone conclusion. And I know, you know, we had Brandon Wolf from Equality Florida on the podcast last week. He was talking about don't say gay and the efforts to deny trans people health care. Um, we've also seen Ron DeSantis use Florida taxpayer funds to fly migrants from texas to martha's vineyard for political stunts which by the way you and i both know from our prior work together on immigration issues is not just illegal it's a massive human rights violation um and and you know i think we should talk a little bit about your experience being a desantis constituent and what we want the country to know about the threat of him as a potential president because I think a lot of people realize that it's bad. I think I don't think the vast majority of Americans have yet grasped exactly how bad it is. Um, and I I have said to people, I personally think Ron DeSantis is more frightening than Trump because absolutely. he is more
0: oh, he is absolutely. more
1: he's more controlled. He's more disciplined. He he does not fly off into these narcissistic tangents. And at the same time, he is fearless about executing these incredibly damaging, hate-filled actions against marginalized communities
0: without even blinking. So tell me your thoughts. He enjoys it. He does. Oh no, he's a sadist for sure. <laughs> um, so, I mean, as you know, I have been screaming about DeSantis for years at this point. Um, Floridians uh, have been screaming about DeSantis. So he has been extremely bad for Florida and he will be a national disaster if he gets anywhere near the White House. Um, I mean, besides the obvious damage that he has caused in his attempt to create his own little fascist utopia, he's just a terrible governor. I mean, he's just a bad governor. All he knows how to do is play to his base and and with these outlandish and cruel policies, he's got no concern for the law. um as we talked said, he's a sadist. I mean, he enjoys causing pain and misery and under his but but aside from his extremely cruel and offensive policies, which undermine any legitimate concept of freedom, you know banning books and people and I mean, all of this just nuts. But he, uh, uh, he's, like I said, he's a bad governor. Under his governance, we have sky high insurance rates. We have sky high rents. Our utilities, he made a deal with utility companies that after the election, they could jack our rates. So now we are, everyone in the state of Florida is preparing for these Huge utility rates, so it's like the Desantis trifecta, right? I mean, it, it's it's almost impossible to live here if you're just a normal person and you want to, you know, have a home that's insured and has electricity. So he's bad at governance. He's a bad person, um, just like his mentor Trump. He is up for sale to the highest bidder. I don't know if you've seen, but his coming inauguration, he is selling access to his VIP party or seating area or whatever it is for up to a million dollars a seat. And those people are not paying a million dollars to chat with Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, is a well-known asshole. Like, he just doesn't do people. Republicans don't like him. The lobbyists don't like him. He was, he, hit the, the Republican Governor's Convention in Florida, in his home state, He was the social outcast. Like, he's just not a good person. Even Republicans don't like him. He's not competent morally. He's not competent professionally. He is not a decent human being. He should not be running the state of Florida. And he absolutely should not be running the United States of America. I mean, the damage he could do. I mean, I I think he's far more dangerous with Trump. I completely agree with you, Elizabeth. It would be devastating to the country. For him to be president.
1: And, you know, we have to think about it in the context of the power that it would afford him because it, you know, if he can get away with flying private jets commissioned with Florida taxpayer money to Texas through conning migrant people desperate for work and housing to get on a private plane and dumping them in other parts of the country, just imagine what he would do. This is what I think about as the president. And you and I did, all this work in 2019 on detention camps and human detention under the Trump administration, all this work around what was already happening in immigration facilities in the United States. And I will tell you that one of my biggest concerns, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir while you and I are talking about this, is literally that he has already shown us what he is willing to do to people who he considers to be Uh, untouchables, right? You know, and I put it in the context of that caste language that exists in India for a reason, right? He has shown us that he doesn't think that people who are fleeing violence in Central America, for instance, are human. And we're, you know, we're like one step removed from like, from, from quite serious proximity to, you know, final solution territory in the way that he talks about immigrants, the way he talks about refugees and the things that he is willing to do and i i don't think people want to face the prospect that the direction that the gop is heading with this oh we're done with trump now we're hopping on the Desantis train stuff is actually an escalation toward fascism not a not a, a a a retreat from it um So, you know, I think, I I know we're on the same page about this, but I think that, you know, the the immediate and proximate danger of this is really real. Um, Oh, absolutely. I, I know you know that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing about DeSantis. Okay, so there are some things that he does just to play to the base, like the whole COVID thing. You know, his kids stayed home the whole time. They were, he made everybody in his offices be vaccinated. He didn't open up the government offices for uh, I mean, until recently. So he was protecting himself and his family, right? So some of that stuff is just playing to the base. But the the genocidal tendencies, that is the real Ron DeSantis. I'm, a lot of people don't know about this, but he actually wrote a book before he was elected governor. I, I have to give the disclaimer that I have not read it because I will not buy it. But it has been widely reviewed as Mein Kampf part two. So this is a guy, he is a true believer. And I mean, I'm sure you've spoken to Fred Gutenberg and, and some other people in the state of Florida, but the, the anti-Semitism and the anti-LGBTQIA, that is the real Ron DeSantis. The, the anti-immigrant, I mean, he is all about, he lives for that. He loves to oppress anyone he considers less than. And... You and I know who the less thans are, right? And it's everybody but a white, cisgendered Christian male. So that is is the real Ron DeSantis. And you are absolutely right to be terrified because give him control of everything at the disposal of the federal government. And there's just no telling what he would do with that. Um, Well, that, you know, kind of brings us to a place of talking about 2024,
1: because, you know, we're just through the midterm election cycle. As I mentioned, you are literally like hours back from Georgia while we're doing this interview. Um, And you and I each did our own version of this on opposite sides of the country Mm -hmm. through the midterms. You and I have been organizers and on the ground get out the vote people for a very long time uh, in our own Uh, locations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does feel like nobody kind of gets a break anymore. No, (laughs) you know, Uh -uh. I I said to people yesterday, you know, after Georgia, okay, you guys can take a few days off, but you know, then we've got to start ramping up for the next cycle. Um, And so I'm curious about you know, what your recommendations are going forward. So, because one of the things that I've tried to do here is talk to people. um, And, you know, I did work with Katie Porter's campaign. I know all the senior organizers there and they've done as I think a lot of us who have worked on particular campaigns or particular issues around voter suppression and voter protection have done, the kind of post-mortem of the midterms, like what worked and what didn't? What do we need to do better next time? Where do we know the polling was off and what what lessons do we take from that? And, you know, one of the things that I think um, we all need to kind of face down is that it's not like even with this incredible result that we got from the midterms, right? We picked up a seat in the Senate. We only lost a few seats in the House. This is an unprecedented result for a a president in his own party in terms of a midterm election. And I don't want to, I don't want to deny that, but it is not like, as I've seen some people say, like democracy won because (laughs) democracy is still under threat and it's under really serious threat. And that is not, over. It's not changing. I mean, if anything, the GOP is constantly doing the work of figuring out how to oppress more people and suppress more votes and gerrymander more districts. And so I'm curious as to your thoughts, given that you are on the front lines in Florida and you've already done the work of facing down someone who's very likely to be a Republican front runner in 2024, um, you know, what your thoughts are about how we get ready for this? Because, you know, we've got time, not a lot of it, because, you know, we all know in spring of 2023, that's when all this is going to start running again. But what are your thoughts right now about how we can prepare for what's coming next?
0: So, yeah, we've got a lot to do. I think that it's important because we have all worked so hard. I mean, it's just been all hands on deck all the time for like five, six years now. I mean, we have just been burning all the candles at all the ends and the middle. So I think that we need to take the wins with gratitude. And I think that we also need to recognize that they should never have been that close. Yeah. These margins should never have been. That is a sign that we have so much work to do. I think... In terms, and I and I think that this is applicable outside of the state of Florida too. I mean, you and I talked to a lot of people in a lot of places, and and I'm, I'm I'm having a lot of parallel conversations. So I don't think this is specific to Florida. Our outcome was was less desirable than other states, but I think we all still have pretty much the same work to do. We need to dial in our organizational capabilities. Uh, we need tight funded supported operations that are on with our on the ground efforts starting now like there's no stand down season anymore that's right. old school it's all hands on deck all the time like we take a little break for the holidays we come back in january and we are stumping already one county has elections in florida in 2023 and so for florida i feel like we have an opportunity here. Um, to we have one of the best candidates I've ever known. Donna Deegan is running for mayor of Jacksonville. Jacksonville is the largest city in the country without a Democratic mayor. And it shows it shows big time. Um, so that's an opportunity. We need to take these off-year elections and we need to lean in and and we need to carry forward the organizations that we create. So the Democratic Party operates at a national level, and even to some extent at a state level, um, in a way that I think could be improved. So, for instance, the party cannot waltz into Florida eight weeks before the twenty twenty four election, and and think that that's going to work. It, it, it's a it's it, it wouldn't work. B it causes chaos and confusion. We need to take these teams and at the completion of an election cycle, we need to do that autopsy that you're talking about. Like, like for instance, you know, the Democrats are like this big, huge volunteer core, right? The Republicans are well-funded and they are all paid. I mean, all of them, everybody who's doing anything for the Republican party, knocking doors, poll watching, poll monitoring. I mean, they are paid. They have travel expenses. It is, a business and it's run like a business in that way. And the Democratic Party is not. And you know, if we don't have the funding for it, that's we don't have the funding for it. But for instance, like in my county, and I'm just going to use my position, not because it's it's, you know, more important than anything else, but it's just it's what I know. So we have late primaries in Florida. They start or they we run them in August and then the election is in November. So we start our primary work for voter protection in like June. And and then it runs through. So it's like a solid six months. And given the, the duties that we're, you know, responsible for now, it, it, it's a pretty hardcore job. I mean, it's like a legitimate, at least two thirds time job. And then during voting, it's, you know, full time. Like I said, all of these county leads, they're all volunteers. Well, perhaps on the way out, you know, at the conclusion of an election, you send send out a questionnaire and say, hey, are you going to be doing this again next time? <laughs> like, let's get our volunteers locked in. Yeah, And so we have this ground game. We don't have to start from scratch every time. And the, it's the
1: consistency of it also that to me is part of the struggle. Like one of the reasons why working with Katie Porter's campaign, for instance, for me has been so rewarding is because it has that consistent volunteer leadership election over election over election to the point where like people are friends now they watch each other's kids right like we have group Mm -hmm. chats where we talk to each Mm -hmm. other about what's happening in a particular neighborhood or how many houses we hit, and you know that kind of work also I think can't be neglected because it's community that gets mm-hmm. people invested in the future of absolutely their elections and their leadership, and so you know, I think your point is really well taken because if we're not if we're not creating that sense of we're all in it together and we're all in it together for the long haul. The other thing that happens is people burn out, right? They're like, well, Mm -hmm. why did I do that if nobody says thank you? Or why am I volunteering all this time to do it when I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting beyond the election result, which hopefully is positive. I'm not getting that sense of, um, of purpose out of it, you know? And I, and so I think that's really key also. I mean, I, I will also add one other thing to this, which I think is, a part of getting our ground game organized early. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this, given that it's Florida, right? You know, deep canvassing as a strategy is something that folks like Anand Giridartist who we had on the podcast have talked about, Not has talked about it. You know, this issue of how we train volunteers to talk to people who maybe aren't on our side of the fence, but are persuadable about, the real key need for their involvement. And I'm not talking about like Trump cult voters, right? I'm talking right. about like, you know, people on the left who maybe are a little bit like disenchanted with how things are going. People in the party who maybe are like registered but haven't voted in the last two elections for some reason. You know, how we get how do we have those conversations over time? And so, you know, I'm curious, I know that we all kind of learn this on the fly on our side of the fence, right? You know, if we're lucky Somebody like Katie talks us up before we go out and knock 100 doors at a time. And the volunteers will help us, you know, give us sheets of information about talking points and the like. But, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because I feel like we drop opportunities to get volunteers even trained
0: to do this early. You are 100% right. That is exactly what needs to happen. We need we need to have people getting trained. Like, so we just completed an election cycle, right? Like in January, we need to have people training for deep canvassing. And we need that deep canvassing to be going on all the time, even if it's a kind of a low level, like a low hum, so that it's not this scramble at the end for training people to talk, you know, to their neighbors and their friends and getting them out there to do it in this high pressure cooker kind of a thing. We need to be training people so that when they're sitting at a soccer game in a year when there's no election, they can have a nice conversation with the parent sitting next to them that is productive and causes them to think about maybe what information they're allowing themselves to receive and maybe take in another viewpoint or maybe some real facts, you know, that's always a fun one. That would be nice. Right, right. If we just all listen to facts. So, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. We need to be, we need to think of it as canvassing is always happening. And I think that we could do our best canvassing in those off off years because it's so much less pressure and people are not entrenched in that team sports election kind of a vibe that we get going in the United States nowadays. They're more relaxed and maybe more receptive to that information. But we should, that's, that's, I mean, that's what the party needs to be doing. The party needs to be setting a knot everywhere so she can train, you know, precinct captains and the precinct captains can train their people. And then, so, and ultimately what you end up with then is just an extremely talented group of people, a big group of people nationwide who are able to relay information in a non-threatening way that can persuade people to at least look at it from another perspective instead of just staying entrenched. So I think I think that's exactly, Elizabeth, I think that's exactly what needs to happen.
1: Yeah. And it plants seeds. I mean, that's the other thing Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about. I mean, I said this so often and I know you have too, it's like every opera, every conversation you have with anyone where you live. And I feel like this is so particularly important, by the way, I just have to shout it out for white women, because there are so Mm -hmm. many white women who vote Republican, you know, and again, you know, the stats are Appalling, but this is our work in calling one another in, right? Is to take every opportunity that we have where we're sitting in a benign environment. We're at the school concert, right? We're sitting at, you know, as you said, at the soccer game or wherever, and to have a conversation that plants seeds. And it doesn't have to be the conversation that says, here's all the reasons why Ron DeSantis is so evil. It can be the conversation that says,
0: how are you feeling about your electric bill right now? Right. Yes. See, these are the, this is the missed opportunity. You know, this, this last minute rush to get people to the polls and get them to vote your way. When really what we need to do is we need to teach people critical thinking and we need to give people information that they're not getting from Fox news. And we need to repair some relationships. You know, I mean, we are just extremely divided. And uh, the only way around that is if we learn some better communication skills.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that that's pointed out in um, a non-geared artist's book that I keep coming back to is we've also got to get to a place where we on the last like Christmas reading list, it's so good. It's just such a good book. It's, he it, you recommended know, it to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It, one of the things that that's in there is that he talks to various folks about this thing of how we build coalitions. And we need to be able to understand that people that we only agree with 50% of the time, like maybe we agree with them that abortion should be free and legal to everybody. Right. But we don't with them about economic policy or whatever Mm -hmm. we have to understand that there's a lot that we can get done with people that we don't agree with everything on and that to the extent that we can build bridges and i mean that across identities across movements and really in our own communities we will be able to get a lot more done. Now, there is the point made in the book that, like, you can't do anything with the fascists, right? You got to leave no, the people. No, 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 that no, 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 no. Agree with like less than ten percent of the stuff that you agree on right. to the side. <laughs> but you know, there's seventy five percent in there, maybe, mm-hmm. if we're lucky, that agree on enough mm-hmm. that if we can coalition build effectively, we can get a lot more done, and that's really what it takes to push back on fasc- fascism. Is that we've got to be able to find ways to build across disagreement to a toward common goals. And that to me is one of the things that's just like really key about where we are right now on the ground. Um, this has been so good. I have to ask you the, the three questions we ask everybody who's on the podcast. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Um, what keeps you going? Oh,
0: my kids, yeah. you know? Isn't it always just the kids? <laughs> I just want them to have opportunities and freedom and a habitable planet. Yeah. it's The little things. I know. It's just the little <laughs> things, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. It's funny. It's um the battles that we are waging. I mean, I'm so inspired by what our kids are up to, you know, Gen Z oh and beyond gosh. and their passion
0: and voters of tomorrow. And she's just like writing op-eds and she's doing digital communications and her two best friends are now opening chapters of voters of tomorrow at their colleges. And I just, it just, me so happy
1: yeah we had Santiago Meyer on the podcast like six weeks ago as we were ramping up for the midterms and uh yeah I love Santiago the things that he has done I just you know it blows my that's mind incredible. so yeah it's I think we got a lot of we have, have to have a lot of faith you know Maxwell Frost just got elected from Florida we have oh, to have a lot of faith in what's coming next I mean I guess that's the Those good news the bright right? lights
0: right the bright yeah. lights yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, next question. What are your most, we've talked about this a lot. What are your most yeah. pressing concerns about the state of America or the world Ooh. right now? I know we haven't even talked about climate. And I know, Toby, <laughs> because of all of our conversations that particularly for you in St. Augustine in a low-lying area that's been hit by hurricanes. And you know, you're know you like a few blocks from the beach. I know that this is- That you know, is one, of, one the... of
0: my things. Yeah, that was actually like my first kind of activist thing. Um, so my concerns probably in temporary order of priority are burnout in the face of fascism. I'm just very worried that people are just going to give up because that's the goal, right? Like most of what they do is designed to make people just give up and, and and let them take control. So I'm concerned. And that's not just in America. I I have concerns about that, you know, and worldwide Um, and then climate change. Yeah. Climate change. Yeah. Big one. I mean, I, I feel like if we survive this, this current onslaught of fascism, it will give us the opportunity to do the things that we need to do to try to mitigate climate change.
1: Yeah. It's all linked. Uh, yeah. Last question. How can our audience, which as you know, is activists and organizers and people who really yes. care about the future and folks like you and me who are doing the work yes. on the ground all the time. What can, what can our audience do to best work to change all of this, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm I'm, I'm excited. You to hear probably you say.
0: do. I mean, I have I, I I don't have an answer, but I have some things that I think um, I can tell you from personal experience help. Uh, so don't give up. Yeah. Uh, be smart about how you allocate your time and your resources. Don't be afraid to say what you think, and don't back down. We can't normalize ignorance and hate. We can't. We just cannot allow that to become normal. Uh, but take care of yourself. Self care yeah. is. Critical. I mean, it's more important now than ever. And you, you got to find your tribe, right? Like, even even here in red, red, red St. Johns County in red, 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 red Florida. You know, I have found a tribe. Obviously, I have a. a I've been blessed with a much larger tribe nationwide. You and you know a lot of other people that I have been the silver lining to all of this. But you know. Your tribe will be your lifeboat. And yeah. that's how we that's how we'll get through it is together. Yep. Yep. Such good advice. Is that what you thought I would say?
1: It is. It's pretty close. I mean, I will tell you it's <laughs> it's interesting doing this because you're the first person who's like a really dear friend of mine, who we've also had on the podcast. And I will just say that I think the ways in which we lean on one another, because once you start doing this work, and you start doing it really intensely, like you and I have done, right? You know, we've been mm-hmm. involved in mass mobilizations that were like mm-hmm. eight hundred cities worldwide, and mm-hmm. the like. You start to realize that your own individual experience of it is not about your failure or your inability to handle stress. It's actually really about like systems that are designed to crush you, and yeah, yeah. Um, and to crush to crush revolt, to crush freedom, mm-hmm. to crush freedom of speech and, you know, democracy. And as soon as you start to realize that and you you find the people that you are in that boat with together, um, it becomes more tolerable. I do not want to represent that it's easy because you and I have both <laughs> collapsed with each other at various times in this work where we're like, oh my God, I can't, you know, we've faced yeah. out things that are yeah. that are yeah. appalling and really hard yeah. and, you know, scary. Like, you know, you were in McAllen inside detention camps where they were housing migrants in 40 degree rooms. You know, you've seen things that most of us would not be able to tolerate even witnessing. And, you know, I think the key to this is that when you're face-to-face with with fascism, you got to be in it with everybody who's on the same side as you, regardless of, you know, their different identity from you or where they live for that matter mm -hmm. or everything. We've all got to be arm and arm together and we've got to really... Push back as one concerted breakthrough movement. So yeah, it was the pretty only close way. to what I thought it was gonna, you were gonna say, but you know, like <laughs> we know each other, so it's all good.
0: Right. <laughs> many, many thanks to Toby G and Luca for being here. Um, oh, for thank of, you. Yeah. and Yeah. Thank you for doing this and getting information, important information out into the world because I mean, that's that's how we swing the pendulum, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's how we bend the arc. All right. Thanks so much.
1: And we will be right back. So I'll tell you, I think the answer to the question of whether Florida can be saved is an obvious one. The people of Florida deserve so much better than what they have right now. And the fact that folks like Toby have to be on the ground minute by minute thinking about even the safety of their voting sites is really just a stunning state of affairs. As we get ready for the incoming 2024 presidential race, and everything that we're going to be facing down as a nation during the next two years. I want to encourage you to start thinking now about how you're going to mobilize for voter protection, how you're going to mobilize against campaigns by people like Ron DeSantis. And especially, I want you to remember that the states where the worst offenders in terms of far-right politicians are having their way right now are suppressed states voter-intimidated states, not states where the individuals who live there are worthy of anything less in terms of democracy than anyone else. We've got a long way to go, but with folks like Toby and folks like you doing the work that we need to do, we're going to be able to pull it out. This episode is airing during the week of the Christmas holiday, we here at Living Through It would like to offer you a happy holiday season, regardless of whether you observe the Christmas holiday or any other one. And we will be back next week with our last episode of the year featuring Jada Selner, who is an incredible author, an incredible entrepreneur, and she will be talking about the alignment of our values in the work that we do in the world. It'll be a great launch to your 2023, and I'll look forward to seeing you here next week. Thanks. Listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Kronice and head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my law and change at newsletter with ecm.substack.com and last but definitely not least you can listen to all our episodes of living through it at free over on patreon at patreon.com that's patreon.com slash living through it thanks for listening and see you next week